0: Hello from Gilbert and Tobin, I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubinstein, and this is The Competitive Edge. What you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the World Cup.
1: Oh, you've got cup fever, Matt. Mad for
0: it. I am. I've got my tickets to the final. I'm right behind the goal in row 64. Is that good? It'll be a great atmosphere, even if it gets a bit thin up the top.
1: Well, today, collaboration or collusion? Partner Elizabeth Avery and lawyer Radarathy join us to talk about how competition regulators are looking at the industry collaborations we might need to reach environmental goals and save the world.
2: One of the key issues for businesses, I think, to think about is how to evidence the benefits that they are claiming under the authorization process. So where businesses are claiming environmental benefits, benefits cannot just be assumed and they will be required to show that the benefits are real, substantiated and
3: verifiable. There is a real urgency, a sense of urgency of what we need to achieve to reach net zero. And I've heard people describe it as the need for radical collaboration. Radical collaboration implies a sense of urgency and speed that might not be possible if you have to go back to the ACCC every time and go through a six-month authorisation process. But first, Matt, what's been happening around the grounds?
0: We have a couple of interesting mergers where the ACCC has issued statements of issues. Uh, I don't think you can issue a statement of issues. Uh, You can't? It sounds funny. You release a statement of issues. Can you also
1: release a press release? No, you issue a press release, you release a statement of issues. I don't see
0: the issue if you issue a statement of issues or release a press release.
1: Give me the sweet release. Or
0: tell me about these mergers. Well, the first one involves Transurban, which is Australia's largest operator of toll roads, and it's looking to pick up a majority stake in Horizon Roads, which owns the East Link Toll Road in Melbourne.
1: Didn't we talk about Transurban buying West Connects in Sydney back in episode three and whether different roads could really compete if they only take you to different
0: stadiums? We did. And this time around, East Link runs from the Donvale Reserve down to the Norm Cathy Oval in Seaford. Mm-hmm. Transurban has the two arms of Citylink: uh, The Western Link will take you from Essendon Airport to the Dockland Stadium. Yeah. And the Southern Link goes past a lot of the sporting grounds around the city including the MCG and, of course, the Melbourne Rectangular Stadium. Oh, now you're
1: talking. That's where the Matildas will play Canada in their final group game. So, not much competition there, though. No offence to the Donvale Cricket Club or the Seaford Junior Football Club.
0: Go Tigers. No, the roads are quite a long way apart, and the ACCC didn't think there was much chance of any road-on-road competition. But like in Sydney, it was concerned that the merger may lessen competition to acquire the rights or concessions to build and operate toll roads in Victoria. And that was because
1: someone who already has a lot of toll roads would already have a lot of traffic data and modelling, as
0: well as a track record and probably lower financing costs. That's right. And in the end, the WestConnex acquisition was cleared after Transurban gave undertakings to share that traffic data, which actually anyone can check out on the internet at nswtollroaddata.com, where I just learned that in the last 15 minutes of March this year, 50 cars travelled westbound on the Cross City Tunnel riveting.
1: So that's the kind of thing they might offer in Victoria?
0: If they have to, yeah. The West Connect Statement of Issues had two orange lights and two green lights, while the new Victorian one just has the one orange and three green. But the ACCC may still feel more comfortable if it gets that undertaking. Well, I thought the whole point of these roads was to avoid traffic lights. Yeah, that's right. Uh, 18 sets for the Cross City Tunnel
1: and 22 for West Connects. Imagine getting 22 red lights in your Statement of Issues. But didn't Both parties at the recent New South Wales election promised to raise the Connect speed limit from 80 to 90 kilometres an hour?
0: They did, but apparently they're still consulting on the safe implementation of that promise.
1: Well, they've got all the traffic data. They should know when the best time is to get out there and change the signs over.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that's what they're waiting for. In other news, we've mentioned before that the ACCC has released a statement of issues on Cochlear's acquisition of Oticon.
1: Cochlear is a global company based in Sydney, that makes a range of hearing devices and implants that can help people with quite severe or profound hearing loss.
0: That's right. Those implants were featured somewhat controversially in 2021's The Sound of Metal, and more positively in CC Bell's graphic novel El Defo, which is now a series on Apple TV+. And Oticon is based in Denmark, but
1: it sells similar devices globally, including in Australia.
0: It does. So Statement of Issues has three red lights this time. The preliminary view is that the deal would be likely to lessen competition in non-surgical bone conduction devices and also surgical bone-anchored devices and to reduce innovation in hearing loss technology into the future. Plus one orange light, it may also lessen competition and reduce innovation in the supply of cochlear implants. And innovation is especially important in this industry, isn't it? Right. And there has been quite a bit of product innovation in terms of smaller sizes, better battery life, advanced sound processing and connecting to other devices like your phone. In El Defo, the implants turn Cece into a kind of superhero because she can hear things that nobody else can, like her teacher going to the toilet.
1: So this statement of issues came out in December last year and the ACCC says it's waiting for information from the parties. What's going on there?
0: Well, the UK Competition and Markets Authority has just decided to block the acquisition of Oticon's bone conduction business, which it found would be profitable as a standalone business. But it's clear the cochlear implant business and MLEX has a statement from the ACCC acknowledging that decision and noting that its main concerns are also with those bone conduction products. So it's going to see how the parties restructure the transaction and go from there.
1: Well, I like the idea of having this podcast transmitted directly to my auditory nerve, Matt, but I'm not sure that would count as a superpower. No, probably not. But I did read that Matilda's goalkeeper, Mackenzie Arnold, recently had hearing aids fitted after realising during COVID that she couldn't follow what people were saying when they wore masks. She'd been lip-reading. So I hope these hearing aid innovations accommodate people who fling themselves horizontally and then crash to the grass so they can keep clean sheets for the Matildas,
0: yeah? Go Macca! Now that's a superpower, and uh, much better than hearing a teacher go to the toilet.
1: No doubt. And an interesting example of how complex it can be for the ACCC to deal with these global mergers, even where the purchaser is an Australian company. But what else is happening?
0: Well, in the US, there's a lot going on with the Federal Trade Commission, Of course, its chair, Lena Khan, really came to prominence with her law review article, Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. And now the FTC has taken legal action against Amazon and the way it gets customers to subscribe and stay subscribed to the Amazon Prime service. And that can give you free shipping as well as video streaming and some other stuff too.
1: They're saying this is a case of dark patterns, but it's actually not easy to see what they're alleging because so much of the complaint is redacted. I mean, a lot of it is literally pages of dark patterns with a few paragraph numbers.
0: It is. The argument seems to be that Amazon is pretty insistent about signing you up to Prime, but isn't clear enough about the cost or the automatic renewal of your subscription. It also says that Amazon makes it much harder to cancel your subscription than it was to join in the first place by making you go through a process that it calls the Iliad flow. I thought
1: that was an old song by Enya, but the complaint says it's a reference to Homer's epic
0: about the long, arduous Trojan War. Interestingly, the Amazons did take part in the Trojan War, but they're not in the Iliad. They're meant to be in the Athiopus, another part of the epic cycle, but that has been lost. Well, that's an interesting use of the word, interestingly. I'm sure all that's in the redacted sections of the complaint. Anyway, the Iliad flow is described as a four-page, six-click, 15-option process that tries to convince you not to give up your Amazon Prime
1: but how long
0: was the Trojan War? About 10 years, according to Homer. The Iliad covers 52 days of that, and that takes about 600 pages. So maybe Iliad flow is a bit of hyperbole. Wasn't she the queen of the Amazons? Ah, that's a fallacy. Hyperbole is where you say one thing, but do the opposite.
1: No, no, that's hypocrisy. And on that score, it has been noted that quite a few of the newspapers that have been reporting on the FTC's action, some cases a little bit gleefully, still themselves offer subscriptions that can't be cancelled online. You have to ring someone up and talk to them.
0: Yeah, or get an AI to talk to them these days. The complaint says that Amazon used a number of dark patterns, including interface interference, obstruction or roach motel, sneaking and confirm shaming, all in breach of Section 5 of the FTC Act, which prohibits unfair or deceptive acts or practices.
1: And is this the first time Chair Khan has taken proceedings against Amazon?
0: It is. Uh, Reportedly, though, the FTC has been looking at a few different things, including Amazon's acquisition of the robot vacuum company iRobot, which was recently cleared in the UK. So there could be some more to come. And I see that the chair has been called to testify before the House Judiciary Committee,
1: which of course is now controlled by the Republicans.
0: Yeah. So this is ostensibly about the FTC's investigation into Twitter and its compliance with an earlier consent decree, which the Republicans think is more about targeting the new owner, Elon Musk. But they've taken issue with a lot of the FTC's actions under Lena Khan, so I think the discussion is going to be pretty wide-ranging. Like Odysseus on his way home from the Trojan War. Exactly. Time for one more? Well, I know we said we'd have a moratorium on artificial intelligence, and we did stick to that for a whole episode, but there's a really interesting piece by New York Magazine and The Verge about the vast amounts of human labour that are going into making AI work these days.
1: You mean like when I have to convince a robot that I'm not a robot by clicking on a bicycle or a traffic light?
0: Yeah, that's kind of where it started. The, the traffic lights in those captures, which if you want to know, stands for Completely Automated Public Turing Test to Tell Computers and Humans Apart. I didn't ask. <laughs> They're actually used to train Google's image recognition, including for its self-driving car project. And before then, you might remember those blurry or wavy text snippets. And they were used to digitize basically all the books in the world for Google search. And all
1: of that was before the AI boom, though. I can't imagine that's enough for all the new applications now, from
0: AI art to ChatGPT. No, it's not. And there are now millions of contractors working long hours around the world to help train various AIs to do various specific tasks. That includes labelling the data that's fed into the AI and also judging the responses the AI comes up with. And those judgments can then be used to create an AI to judge the first AI. I love this line from the story. ChatGPT seems so human because it was trained by an AI that was mimicking humans, who were writing an AI that was mimicking humans, who were pretending to be a better version of an AI that was trained on human writing. So do these jobs pay all that much? It depends. Like a lot of the early work didn't pay a lot and it kept on moving around the world to find the lowest cost. But now that the models are getting more sophisticated, they need more specialised training and that can cost a bit more. So the article says you can make $45 an hour teaching robots law or $25 teaching them poetry. Hmm. So you could make $70 an hour teaching them legal poetry. And you can make good money
1: teaching them maths. Well, I guess this is like a startup phase where we need a lot of human intervention now to get things
0: up and running. But will we be
1: able to rely on the AI to train itself going
0: forward? That's the big question at the moment. Um, The view seems to be that you'll always need humans involved at some level, but they'll get more and more meaningful help from AI.
1: Yeah, that's quite an image, isn't it? All these millions of people working to make AI work or look like it's working.
0: Yeah. One of the places where the AI companies get a lot of these gig workers is from Amazon's crowdsourcing platform, which it calls its Mechanical Turk. And that's named after a clockwork chess playing robot built in the 18th century, which toured the world for decades and beating pretty decent chess players which actually had a human chess master hidden under the chessboard, pulling all the levers. Gosh, so artificial, artificial intelligence. That's right. And that isn't exactly what this is, but it is sort of industrially complicated when you look at all the human labor involved in creating the source material, then annotating the material, and then training the models, and then who ends up making the money out of all of that? Well, this is the competitive edge. You're making it sound like the Green Left Weekly. Yeah, Funny you should say it, because Alex Wansborough from Sydney Uni has an article in the Green Left Weekly where he asks ChatGPT to conduct a Marxist analysis of itself. Tell me, I've been missing a good bit of Marxist analysis. Me too. It said, a Marxist critique of ChatGPT reveals it as a product of the contradictions and exploitation of capitalist production. While it represents a remarkable technological achievement, It also embodies the domination of the global working class and reinforces existing power relations in society. So it sounds like it's achieved self-awareness. Yeah, though it still can't spot a traffic light, apparently. But we'll keep an eye on those developments and see how long the AI moratorium lasts this
1: time. Indeed. But Matt, following our chat with climate change and sustainability partner Ilona Miller on the new net zero regulation, you sat down with Elizabeth Avery and Radha Rathi to talk about the implications of these changes for competition.
0: That's right. Alona made the point that complying with the new laws is going to involve a lot of industry cooperation, including perhaps between direct competitors. Hmm. Elizabeth and Radha had a lot to say about the way that regulators are approaching these collaborations, both here and around the world. Let's take a listen. Last episode, we spoke to climate change and sustainability partner, Eleanor Miller, about the obligations that many businesses now have to address the environmental impact of their operations, and the fact that many mitigation options are likely to need some kind of industry cooperation. Today, I'm joined by competition and regulation partner, Elizabeth Avery, and lawyer Rada Ratti, to talk about how those imperatives can be squared with competition law. Elizabeth and Rada, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Hi, Matt. Lovely to see you again. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here.
0: Elizabeth, what kinds of sustainability or environmental collaborations are we seeing that are likely to raise competition law issues?
3: It's important to note that not all collaborations do indeed raise competition law issues. The ones that we focus on the most are those collaborations between competitors or potential competitors and primarily the risk of breaching the cartel prohibitions. So, collaborative conduct between competitors that could involve an element of price fixing, for example, when an industry agrees to acquire goods from a particular supplier collectively, perhaps it's, you know, environmentally better to do so. When an industry may agree to boycott particular customers because they uh, pose an environmental risk, all of those types of conduct, while there might arguably be some public benefit, obviously have an impact on competition. So, they're the types of collaborations that we primarily focus on as competition lawyers and that industry needs to think about how either the ACCC or a private party could litigate against them.
0: So, in Australia, we do have a mechanism to allow for some collective action that would provide a net public benefit. How does that apply to environmental collaborations?
3: That public benefit test is applied in a few contexts. Firstly, you can seek authorization for an agreement that the ACCC will consider and review and they can authorize and exempt from the competition laws either on the basis that there is no substantial lessening of competition likely or even if there is, the public benefits of the collaboration outweigh any substantial lessening of competition so environmental collaborations seem to be an ideal case for using that authorisation process. And indeed, the ACCC has said they are open to engagement and really want to hear from parties on that basis. And that public benefit test isn't just for specific agreements. A few years ago, a new power was introduced to allow the ACCC to authorise on a class exemption basis for a class of conduct. That could be quite helpful in the environmental context. It hasn't been used very much yet, but it could very well be used in an industry to allow collaboration on an ongoing basis and might be more effective, actually, in some contexts. There is a real urgency, a sense of urgency of what we need to achieve to reach net zero. And I've heard people describe it as the need for radical collaboration. Radical collaboration implies a sense of urgency and speed. That might not be possible if you have to go back to the C every time and go through a six-month authorisation process. So once it's been done once and the ACCC's tested a particular type of agreement, you could get a class exemption because of the environmental public benefits, potentially.
0: Radical collaboration makes me think of the early days of the COVID pandemic, when a lot of competitors got together, industries got together to solve the urgent problems of the time. How did the C deal with that issue?
3: They were incredibly nimble and worked really hard, actually really quickly. And there's an interim authorization process that allows you to seek authorization on an urgent basis because the C will not retrospectively authorize conduct. So what you need to do in advance is go in and get authorization. In the context of those pandemic-related authorizations, the ACCC actually authorized on an interim basis a lot of conduct within days. There are quite a few people who didn't sleep, including on the ACCC side, for several days while those decisions were being made very quickly. While there is a lot of urgency to the environmental issues and a need for radical collaboration, I think it would be hard to explain to the ACCC that something needed to be done within days. The types of circumstances that the ACCC was considering during the pandemic were people not being able to make mortgage payments, those types of things which required banks to collaborate and consider what terms they could offer in hardship cases, uh, really did require urgent action. Environmental action is absolutely urgent, but perhaps it's more like weeks rather than days.
0: What has the ACCC done so far in terms of laying out its approach and and applying its approach to environmental cooperation?
3: So, so far, the ACCC has highlighted that the authorisation process does allow them to consider environmental benefits. And indeed, in September 22, Chair Cascot-Leib in a speech at the Fordham Conference, clearly articulated that the ACCC is open to engagement in relation to considering environmental benefits in competitor collaborations as a potential basis for authorising the conduct. In announcing the compliance and enforcement priorities earlier this year, the chair again confirmed that broader work in relation to the intersection between environmental and sustainable issues and competition law is a priority and that a new task force focusing on sustainability, building on the ACCC's expertise to coordinate efforts across the agency would be implemented. Commissioner Carver at the ABA spring meeting announced that the ACCC was developing environmental benefit guidance. So parties that are seeking authorization or considering collaboration could take into account their guidelines. Now it may be that in some situations, just because there's a collaboration in relation to environmental issues, there's not really a competition issue and with the guidance, parties will be better able to self-assess whether they do need to go and seek authorization or whether the guidance gives them sufficient comfort that there wouldn't be a competition problem that they need authorization for.
0: Radha, what can you tell us about the way the ACCC has applied this thinking in determinations of authorization so far?
2: So, in past decisions, the ACCC has already interpreted public benefits to include environmental benefits. Most noteworthy is what I call the battery levy case from 2020, So here, the ACCC authorized a scheme proposed by an industry body that allowed its members, battery suppliers, to impose a levy on most types of imported batteries, which would be passed on to consumers in order to fund proper recycling of those batteries. So this case is really noteworthy because the ACCC authorized conduct, despite an increase in the price of batteries for consumers, up to 6% in case of some batteries, which the ACCC thought was overall small compared to the significant environmental benefits resulting from the proper recycling of those batteries. In their justification, the ACCC's rationale was that the levy likely results in a more efficient allocation of resources in the economy, which means that the environmental harm caused by disposing of the batteries to landfill and the cost of recycling batteries was not reflected already in the price of batteries before the levy was imposed and that the levy proposed by the industry body was to better align the price of batteries with the cost of their responsible disposal. There are also some other examples where the ACCC has taken into account environmental benefits. So, for example, the ACCC has granted a number of authorizations for joint purchasing, For example, joint purchasing of renewable energy, where applicants were able to pool their demand for renewable energy and jointly negotiate and agree the purchase of that energy and share information necessary for that particular agreement. And more recently, as many listeners may have heard, the ACCC has also authorised a number of major supermarkets in Australia to explore solutions together to address the immediate effects of Red Cycle suspending its return-to-store soft plastics program.
0: So not every jurisdiction has an authorization process that's very much like ours, I gather. How are overseas countries dealing with these kind of issues?
2: So this is a really hot topic for a number of the major international competition authorities. I think it's fair to say that Europe is at the forefront of the movement. Most authorities in Europe, at least, don't have an authorization regime similar to what we have in Australia that Elizabeth touched upon earlier. And so these authorities are really considering how the existing laws can either be interpreted are updated to avoid being an unnecessary roadblock to what are genuinely necessary ESG collaborations. Earlier this month, the EU Commission adopted a revised set of guidelines which clarifies its position on sustainability agreements. So I think I would highlight three interesting points from the Commission's guidance. Firstly, the guidelines provide for a broad definition of sustainability agreements based on the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So, sustainability is not just limited to the environment, but includes broader objectives such as human rights, living wages, healthy diets, animal welfare, etc. Secondly, the guidelines provide for a soft safe harbor for sustainability standardization agreements where certain conditions are met. This could be initiatives that establish a green logo for products meeting minimum requirements, like a fair trade or a green button. And thirdly, It's the consumer's fair share of benefits criteria. So where agreements under EU law are found to restrict competition, they need to satisfy certain strict conditions to be exempt from breaking the law. So one of the conditions is that the consumers must receive a fair share of the benefits. The traditional view under EU law is that the consumers who receive the fair share of the benefits must be the same consumers who suffer from the harms or the restrictions posed by the agreement. So this criteria in the environmental context has raised many questions during the consultation phase. For example, can future benefits be taken into account if the group of consumers who will enjoy the benefits, for example, clean air, is much wider than those who face the harms, for example, price increase in certain products? So the EU guidelines clarify that future benefits can be taken into account. However, in terms of the wider class of consumers, they've noted that a wider class can only be taken into account if the group of consumers affected by the restriction is substantially the same as the one that receives the benefits. But it remains to be seen how that will be interpreted in real life cases in the environmental context.
0: And now that the UK is no longer part of Europe, they're going about things a bit differently. What can you tell us about what's happening there?
2: So earlier this year, the CMA also published draft guidance on its intended approach in this area. The most interesting point about the CMA's draft guidance is that the CMA proposes to adopt a more permissive approach to a subset of sustainability agreements, which it calls climate change agreements, given the urgency of the climate change crisis. So unlike the EU guidance, for these subset of climate change agreements, the UK guidance allows the authority to take into account benefits that will accrue to all UK consumers rather than just the consumers who suffer the alleged harms.
0: And Elizabeth, how do these approaches compare with what's going on in the United States?
3: The U.S. is quite different in many respects, and the U.S. antitrust authorities haven't given any clear-cut framework to take account of potential ESG benefits. You do have a leadership in the FTC and the DOJ who are concerned about broader harms to consumers than just price effects, but you don't have the flip side of being concerned about the positive benefits that might arise from some conduct that could otherwise be considered anti-competitive. It's quite one way in some respects. There is a view that ESG benefits do not exempt an agreement that negatively affects competition. Possibly environmental issues are somewhat more politicised in the US than they are in Australia with House Republicans and several state attorney generals having initiated antitrust investigations into particular climate groups, alleging that their environmental collaborations are having an anti-competitive impact. Looking at all of this in the round, it is definitely, even in the US, a hot topic all around the globe. There's not really a consistent approach every jurisdiction is sort of marching to the beat of its own drum at the moment and query whether that's really a sustainable approach for the world generally when you've got these global problems with the global dimension a little bit like frankly the digital platforms issues can you really have idiosyncratic approaches when these problems are very much transborder issues not limited by jurisdiction And you mentioned
0: self-assessment earlier, and I understand that businesses in Australia can self-assess to some extent whether there's a competition issue raised by their potential conduct, but they can't necessarily self-assess about whether there'll be an offsetting public benefit, right? That requires going to the ACCC.
3: Yeah, absolutely. At the moment, it really does. You really can't self-assess whether your public benefits are going to be sufficient at this stage to outweigh any SLC. That's quite a difficult equation and there definitely isn't any procedure under the competition laws to do so. As I mentioned earlier, there is this class exemption process, which could, if it's used appropriately, allow for a degree of self-assessment. Once the class exemption for a particular type of industry conduct was in place, then parties within that industry would self-assess whether their conduct fell within that scope and the public benefits would be sufficient. But that's really the only self-assessment you could really do at the moment. Yeah.
0: There seems to be maybe a bit more scope for self-assessment in the European context. Is that right, Rada?
2: Yes. that That's just how the European regime is uh, set up.
0: So, Rada, if uh, we're looking at an industry collaboration that could raise competition issues and you want to raise sort of environmental or sustainability benefits, you might have to get it authorised, as we just discussed. What are the key issues for businesses considering that issue and that approach to the ACCC?
2: I think businesses should be really encouraged by the ACCC's recent comments that they are open to engagement on this issue and so should be willing to you know, put forth their proposals to the ACCC. However, this is, of course, a developing space and there are a number of issues that are still untested. The ACCC's approach will evolve as it investigates more real-life cases, better data is available, and the international approach evolves. In any event, though, we don't expect that the ACCC will take a light-handed approach to any authorization applications in this context. And therefore, for businesses who are considering an authorization, early and thorough preparation is key. One of the key issues for businesses, I think, to think about is how to evidence the benefits that they are claiming under the authorization process. So where businesses are claiming environmental benefits, benefits cannot just be assumed and they will be required to show that the benefits are real, substantiated and verifiable. And this is of course a really complex, nascent and developing area. The Dutch and Greek competition authorities have done some work in quantification in this context and have jointly published a paper on quantification of benefits based on environmental economic principles, which is linked to the show notes.
0: If we end up getting close to 2030 and we're still a way off meeting our commitments, do you think that'll affect the C's approach or the balance of the public benefits or the detriments or become more like a COVID situation?
3: One would hope that by then, the the ACCC has got quite familiar with assessing the environmental benefits, so it may be possible to get things done more quickly. But I still don't think they're going to whitewash what would otherwise be naked cartel conduct. The the other thing we should remember is that they are very concerned about greenwashing. And so that will continue to be an issue that the ACCC will be looking at and investigating. And we shouldn't assume that they will dismiss those issues because of their concerns about the environment. They are a competition regulator.
0: They yeah. are. Well, it's a really interesting area for competition and regulation, as well as, you know, sort of living on the planet into the future. And I expect we'll see a lot more action as the Paris Agreement milestones get closer. We'll look forward to talking to you again pretty soon, I'm sure. In the meantime, thank you very much, Elizabeth and Ryder, for being on the competitive edge.
3: Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt.
0: What
1: a great interview. It sounds like we have some tools that could be used to balance competitor collaborations with environmental benefits here. I just wonder if they're responsive enough for the moment that we're in right
0: now. Yeah. I mean, you can get an interim authorisation pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And the new class exemption process does have potential if the ACCC can make it work in a way that's broad enough to be useful. But in the end, they are a competition enforcement agency. And I think they'd always rather take a look for themselves.
1: Well, you wouldn't want to see a good idea burn out because businesses felt they couldn't even talk to each other about it.
0: No. And there is a lot of stuff that you can talk about as long as you don't reach an agreement or understanding Mm. or share sensitive information that could lead to a concerted practice. And you can also get an interim authorization to make an agreement, even if you then need to wait for final authorization to give effect to it.
1: Mm, Sounds like you need a lot of lawyers in the room. And I guess guidelines from the ACCC could encourage industry to have discussions within those rules. But an exemption broad enough to allow those safe harbours and a reasonable amount of self-assessment could be even better, perhaps. Maybe that's something the ministers for climate change or the environment could submit to the ACCC.
0: No reason why they couldn't. Uh, and at least we don't have to worry about whether the benefits flow to the right consumers like they do in Europe. And at least the agencies don't seem to be actively hostile to environmental collaborations like they may be in the US. So they even have a Green Left Weekly over there? They have the Guardian. I don't know if that counts. But before we go... What's in your recyclable crystal ball? Well, the ACCC's National Anti-Scam Centre has just announced a fusion cell to combat investment scams, which are now costing Australians a billion dollars a year. Wait, what's a fusion cell? As near as I can tell, it's a type of ammunition typically used by laser-based energy weapons in the Fallout series of video games from Bethesda, which Microsoft bought in 2021. I feel like you've been doing a bit too much research into that Activision merger. That is possible. Uh, A fusion cell is also apparently a time-limited task force designed to bring together expertise from government and the private sector to take timely action to address specific urgent problems. Here's how ACCC Chair Gina Kaskotlieb described it to Senator Jane Hume and estimates in May.
1: I was interested linguistically in the what is the background of the term fusion cell. And apparently fusion cell first came from the parties across all different sorts of government who got together to fight al-Qaeda for the Obama government. Right. And the concept of it is to not worry about form and structure, to bring the most expert participants who can bring the most to bear in a flexible,
3: immediate way. So, and I did hear the Assistant Treasurer use the phrase fusion, fusion cell, and I hadn't heard that one before, but he also used the phrase hit squad. So, what, and I don't know whether he's just been colourful. There was a chance that there was that. So what does a hit squad look like?
1: We, we believe it's another word for a fusion cell, right. okay. which it, what we're saying is a topic-focused expert group that will be formed for a particular time frame, and it will have a specific time frame it has to work to.
0: So this fusion cell or hit squad also involves ASIC, as well as representatives from the banks, the telecommunications industry and the digital platforms.
1: So the idea would be to disrupt these scams by keeping them off the digital platforms, then blocking them from our phones, and I guess stopping us from sending our money to the scammers via the banks.
0: Yeah, it's a really good idea. It's involving all the people who'd want to be involved, and I hope it'll make a dent in that billion dollars lost every year. Yeah. And there are some more fusion sales planned for other scam types, which may have different participants. So what's your prediction then? Could they be called the Mat Pack Or the Dodd Squad? Actually, I'm not sure any of those names are going to last the distance. Yeah. They might end up, I think, with a more normal name. You go, not afraid to make the big calls.
1: Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes or email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au.
0: And we've got some great guests still to come, including technology partner Simon Burns with former Human Rights Commissioner Ed Santo and an all-star panel on ethical AI. There goes the moratorium. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till next time, this was
1: The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. Go
0: Matillas. Till it's
1: done.